just as we prepare to study and hear the Word of God together, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 7. You probably thought I was going to preach on chapter 6 again, but after two messages that were close to an hour along each, I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking that most of the, the, the central truth in there has been covered. I do apologize, though, that uh, I had to reformat my phone to factory specifications this week and didn't back up those messages before I got them online. So our John chapter 6 messages are forever lost, um, unless I can somehow reconstruct them from my scratch notes. Um, maybe that's providential. John chapter 6 could get me into a lot of trouble, um, if, you know, the way that I, the way I taught it. Well, anyway, we're going to be in John chapter 7. Um, we'll refer briefly back to chapter 6. I'm just going to invite you to join me as we ask for the Lord's help in the preaching and in the hearing of the Word. Father, you know that, uh, that I have struggled to uh, bring, the, bring a, a, a firm and, and direct message from this passage of Scripture but I believe that you have supplied. I do pray now that even those teachings and those truths that are difficult to put into words or difficult to explain, that you give grace in the explanation of them. And Lord, that you give grace also to the hearers, that we can all hear and understand and receive the words of life. I pray this in Jesus' name. I'll just give you one other heads up. I got about half or three quarters of this message scripted, so there's going to be kind of a, an odd transition between scripted, fluent, and my usual. So when that happens, just take it in stride, say it's just hardly, and, uh, and listen to the, what's being proclaimed rather than be distracted by those things. All right, so I'll begin here. When Jesus... And we're not going to read through John chapter 7. It's, it's a long chapter, but we will, through the course, uh, we will cover pretty much the whole chapter. So usually we read ahead of time, but we will address the whole text as we go through. When Jesus had finished feeding the 5,000 in John chapter 6, he did something very strange. Rather than seizing on that moment and using the people's enthusiasm to spearhead a campaign, for his kingship, he withdrew to the mountain by himself. The text says that he did this because he perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. The next morning, after Jesus had miraculously crossed the Sea of Galilee, the same people met him on the other side of the lake, just as enthusiastic. If it had been Jesus' intention to make himself known, to endear himself to the people, he would have given them what they came for, bread for their bellies. Instead, he called out their fickle carnality. He said in John 6, verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He went on to use the miracle and the people's desire for bread as a way of teaching them about himself. As the bread of life, who must be eaten by faith, and whose blood must be drunk by faith. 
in order to bring about eternal life. What's most striking in Jesus' teaching is that it does not serve to gain the people's confidence. Quite the opposite. Not only does it cause dispute and confusion among the people, it even drives away many of his own disciples. He's left standing with the twelve that he has chosen, and one of those he knows will betray him. Jesus asks if they will go away like all the rest. And Peter, who's often the first to speak out in an awkward silence, demonstrates the correct response of faith that Jesus has been teaching about. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. As I meditate on this account, I can't help but see the contrast between the way of Jesus and the methods employed by modern evangelism and church growth. The mantra for the church today seems to be, give people what they want, slip in a few spiritual suggestions, subtle ones, while they're gorging on fish and bread. Do whatever it takes to keep them coming back. Jesus practiced honest evangelism. He He laid God's truth out in such a way that nobody would be duped into following him because of manipulation or mass enthusiasm. His words were a sword that pierced to the heart. To some, those words were irresistible. To others, they were detestable. In the beginning of John chapter 7, we find that Jesus cannot even travel to Judea because the Jews there are seeking to kill him. You would recall that he had done a miracle on the Sabbath and gotten a lot of the leadership very angry at him. Everyone else is going because of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles is, that's coming up, but Jesus is persona non grata in Judea. Why? Because of his teaching. He's identified himself as the sole means by which people can have eternal life. He's called God his Father and claims the very authority of God when he speaks. He has cleansed the temple with a whip, calling the temple of God his Father's house. He's healed a man on the Sabbath and soundly refuted those who attempted to use the law of Moses against him by using the very law of Moses and saying, Moses will stand and condemn you. Clearly, Jesus has not read the church growth manuals. We see in the, ne- in the next text, or pardon me, we see next in the text that Jesus, not even Jesus' own brothers believe in him. They know he has done some impressive signs, and they see that he could perhaps make a name for himself. So they say in verse 3 and 4, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. In our vernacular, we might say, if you've got it, flaunt it. People need to know what you can do. They didn't believe in Jesus, and they completely missed what he was all about. In their natural way of thinking, they could not imagine any motive in Jesus other than self-promotion. They think he ought to go to Jerusalem and wow his followers with more miracles to turn the tide of popular opinion in his favor. Jesus' response speaks volumes, not only about his own purpose, 
but also about the human heart. He says, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. I can imagine Jesus' brothers raising their eyebrows and looking at each other as if to say, what in the world is he talking about? Well, what in the world is he talking about? Let's dig into that a bit. First, he says, my time has not yet come. His brothers are likely thinking Jesus means he's not quite ready to make his big move and secure the adulation of the people in Jerusalem. But as we've already seen in the Gospel of John, Jesus is not at all focused on the glory that comes from impressed people, but the glory that comes from a satisfied Father in Heaven. He is speaking of the day when He will be lifted up, not on the shoulders of men as a conquering hero, but on the limbs of a cross, bearing on His shoulders the curse of sin, wearing on His head a crown of thorns. That is the hour, that is the time that has not yet come. He goes on to say to his brothers, your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. Though they probably missed his meaning, this should have caused them great concern. Friends, we are in serious trouble if our time is always here and if the world cannot hate us. The world showers attention and glory upon people who belong to it, who share in its attitudes and desires, who share its rejection of Jesus Christ as the only Savior of the world. The world cannot hate its own. The word world, which is cosmos in Greek, is used many different ways in the book of John, at least ten different ways. And here it is used to describe the whole system of thought and belief that is opposed to God. And that all people, and, and with that, all people who hold to that system. The only people the world hates are those who truly believe in Jesus. And as John makes clear here, Jesus' bought, Jesus' brothers at this point do not believe in him. Then Jesus says that the world hates him because he testifies about it that its deeds are evil. Once again, Jesus demonstrates that he's just not up to speed on church growth philosophy or strategy. You, can, you can't go around calling out the world's sin. You can't go around chasing out traitors, traitors out of the temple or telling the Pharisees that the very words of Moses they claim will give them life actually rise up and, will rise up and condemn them on the last day. These would be the religious leaders. You just don't do that. And does it strike you as odd that the testimony of Christ has been largely against religious Jewish people rather than against the Samaritans or the Gentiles? This shows us very clearly that when Jesus speaks of the world, he is not only speaking of the heathen. The Gentiles and Samaritans are not excluded. And those who have no knowledge about God, but of those who have much knowledge and yet do not receive from the scriptures the testimony of Jesus. Also, does it strike you as odd that Jesus speaks to his own brothers in this way? Clearly, he's not all about making people comfortable or keeping the peace. He's about the truth. And the truth is that the world loves its sin 
and hates those that testify against it. We know that after Christ rose from the dead, his brothers did believe, and that two of them actually wrote books of the New Testament, James and Jude. It seems that Jesus' indifference toward a seeker-driven philosophy did not drive his brothers away, ultimately, but ended up being part of the testimony of the Holy Spirit that saved them. Now we see in our text that Jesus says to his brothers, you go up to the feast. See, Jesus is not opposed to the feast. Like the scriptures themselves, the feasts recorded in the Old Testament testify of Jesus. They abound with insights of grace and redemption and point in hope toward the time when all will be, be fulfilled in Christ. So Jesus encourages his brothers to go and to join in with their Israelite brethren not only in their tradition about, ce about celebrating the Feast of Booths, but in anticipation of their Messiah, whom they do not even know stands right before them. Jesus, Jesus continues, I am not going to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Again, we must remember that the time he speaks of is his glorification through the cross and his subsequent resurrection and ascension. But in this sentence, he seems to connect the feast with himself. I am not going to the, up for the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So we see that he seems to connect the feast with himself. We will see, as we progress through this chapter, that it is indeed about Jesus. We see in verse 9 that Jesus remained in Galilee after saying these things, but that he later went up to the feast privately. Does this mean that he was being dishonest when his brothers, with his brothers? No, it rather means that he answered them according to the intention of their question. They were encouraging him to go publicly and promote his own fame. And Jesus was simply explaining to him why he could not do that. In fact, if you're concerned, there are actually some manuscripts that read, I am not yet going up to the feast. So there was no intention to deceive. In any case, Jesus travels, perhaps alone, but most likely with a few of his close disciples, to Jerusalem for the feast. He observes the buzz on the street around him. The Jews, that is the religious leaders, were looking for him, saying, where is he? Most likely to condemn him and ultimately kill him. That seemed to be common knowledge even among the crowd in Jerusalem. The common people muttered and whispered to each other. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Clearly, Jesus' knowledge of the Jews' intent is entirely accurate. The people know of their leader's malicious intent toward Jesus, and they dare not publicly speak about him, but gossip and speculation still abounds. Had Jesus come to the feast publicly and with great fanfare, he would have been an easy target, and they could have easily seized him and, and, and charged him with some sort of insubordination, but he enters quietly because his time has not yet come. We see in verse 14 that about the middle of the feast, Jesus went into the, up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now when you read the word Jews here, we're talking about the establishment. 
We're talking about the Sanhedrin, perhaps, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elite. As opposed, there's, there's the Jews and the people. You've got to keep those things um, in contrast as we read this. Here we see again that Jesus is all about truth, about accurately representing the message of redemption in complete harmony with the Father and the Spirit. Just whatever the Father says, I say. Whatever the Father does, I do. Whatever I see the Father doing, I do. And it isn't as though as Jesus was, has never read the scriptures and meditated upon them. He has studied. He just hasn't studied with any of their recognized rabbis. What the Jews are really saying is, where does this guy get his authority? What right does he have to say such things? Now we don't have any record exactly what he taught about, but we can speculate a little bit given the time of year, what was going on in Jerusalem. There would have been certain passages of scripture that would be for sure reflected upon in synagogue and in the temple. So uh, we'll, we'll hopefully get to that a little later. So Jesus answers them in verse 16 through 19. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? This is an amazing passage. Because we see Jesus rise to their challenge, not by toning down his rhetoric, his message, but by amping it up. He persists in his controversial claim that he speaks with the very authority of God and insists on the truthfulness of his testimony on the grounds that he is seeking his Father's glory rather than his own. We've just seen an example of that in his coming privately to the feast. His brothers wanted him to seek his own glory. Jesus wanted only to seek his Father's glory, knowing that he would, in turn, be glorified by the Father. And just as he ex had explained to his brothers that the world hated him because of his testimony against their evil deeds, Jesus now stands in the temple and does exactly that. He accuses the Jews, already rabid with hate and jealousy, of breaking the law of Moses. Has not Moses given you the law that yet you have not kept his law? And to that they said, ouch. What a thing to say to the, they didn't really say that. They felt that. What a thing to say to the leaders of the people whose claim to fame was keeping the law in front of the very people that looked to them for an example. Like I said, he really didn't uh, read those church growth manuals. Finally, Jesus exposes the motives of their hearts. Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus knew what was in man. You've heard that verse before? John chapter 2. When people believed in him, but he would not entrust himself to them because he had no need of anyone to testify him concerning the heart of a man because he knew what was in man. 
Nobody could fool him. This accusation is met with fierce denial, not just from the leaders, but from the crowd. You have a demon, they cry. Who is seeking to kill you? You would think that Jesus could have handled this a little bit more diplomatically, wouldn't you? But he knows that what was driving these he knows what was driving these people, so he, he presses on. We need to consider that the penetrating eyes of Jesus that see to the very heart of people are paralleled by the word of God, especially in the gospel. If the gospel is rightly preached, it is a sword that lays bare the thoughts and intentions of the hearts of men. And when it's accompanied by a right exposition of the law, there is no escape from the reality of sin. Everything about us is naked and open before the one to whom we must give account. From Hebrews 12, or 4 verse 13. Why is it that Christians so often take great measures to blunt the sword and dull its edges? Jesus did no such thing. Jesus continues to teach zeroing in on the Jews' self-righteousness while at the same time declaring his own authority. He says, I did one deed and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was Moses, but from the fathers, from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man received circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I make a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Just in case you missed it, Jesus actually told them to judge. You need to, all of those judgment passages, there's a context to them. He's referring, of course, in his, uh, the miracle that he's talking about, to the miracle, he, the last miracle he'd done in Jerusalem, in chapter 5, which was the healing of the invalid man by the pool, and the ensuing debate over whether he had broken the law by healing on the Sabbath. In his rebuke, in chapter 5, he exposes the bitterness and hardness of their hearts to the spirit of the law. And here, in his rebuke, he says that they, he shows that they, they can justify the a mutilating ritual on the Sabbath. But still they condemn Jesus for making a man whole. They're completely focused on external acts of righteousness, but completely blind to the truth of Jesus as revealed in the scriptures that they claim to love. As Jesus had previously taught the Jews when he had healed the man, he said, you search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. When Jesus calls them to judge with right judgment, he's calling them to an impossibility. For as yet they have no spiritual eyes. They can only judge by appearance and are incapable of righteous judgment. They are like the woman at the well who at first could not stretch her mind to think beyond this, this, the physical water when Jesus 
offered her living water. They're like Nicodemus who couldn't think beyond the, spirit, the physical birth when Jesus said to him, you must be born again. And they're like the crowd who could not perceive anything more than physical bread when he gave them bread for heaven, from heaven and then said, I am the bread of life. And that, uh, and that that bread would satisfy for eternity. Now things get really interesting. Jesus is standing in the temple in the middle of Jerusalem and there seems to be mass confusion. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, "Is this is in 25 if you're following along, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities, in, quote, in brackets, the Jews, really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Some of the people of Jerusalem said, uh, sorry, I just read that. The people are impressed by the boldness of Jesus' words, especially because they seem to silence their leaders. Yet they're focused, they're, they're confused as to who really Jesus is. And they're trying to reconcile in their mind their understandings about Jesus. And then there's a cautious suggestion that he could be the Christ. Perhaps Jesus' boldness in dealing with the Jews has given them more courage to speak their minds because they, they're now talking about him openly. The tension mounts as Jesus proclaims right in the middle of the temple, in the midst of the leaders who want to kill him, in verse 28, you know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now that seems maybe wording and confusing, but when we think about it a little bit, Jesus is saying a lot in these words, and the Jews understood exactly what he was saying. Again, here he goes insisting that he knows God that he comes from God, and that he has been sent by God. But the real kicker here is that he insists that the people who profess to know God do not know him at all. You do not know him. They might know his physical origin, where he comes from, his parents, but they have no capacity to know who sent him. Their pride is obviously injured by Jesus' penetrating words. So they seek to arrest him, but no one lays a hand on him. Now I'd like, I'd like you to notice here in the text that the reason, they don't, the reason that they don't immediately seize him, the text says in verse 10, second part, that it was because his hour had not yet come. Amazing. These men were prevented from acting, not by their own restraint, but because God's sovereign purpose in sending Jesus into the world and Christ's mission of mercy to redeem sinners by going to the cross had to be fulfilled exactly as the scriptures predicted. And those men could not have acted to arrest him, though they wanted to. They wanted to kill him, 
but they couldn't. As Jesus would say later, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down freely. Not only are the Jews silenced by Jesus' words, they are also sovereignly restrained from arresting him. But their greatest fear is realized. Many of the people believe in him, saying, when the Christ appears, <coughs> will he do more signs than this man has done? What seems to be going on here is that the signs that they have seen, coupled with the teaching of Jesus Christ, is producing faith. And yet with that faith, as there's people in the multitudes who are beginning, <coughs> is beginning to dawn on them who Jesus is and what he's done, there's also a polarization, there's a separation going on between those who have a righteousness of their own and those who are beginning to look toward Jesus. Continuing now in verse uh, 32. The Pharisees and the crowd muttered, heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I go, where I am, you cannot come? Again, Jesus is using language that excludes the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, from actually being able to approach true peace with God through Jesus Christ. He says, you can't go where I'm going. And the only thing that they can think of in their, their carnal, man-centered mind is that he would go to the Gentiles, where they would never go for fear of contamination. The heavenly reality, the heavenly origin of the Son of Man is something that their minds cannot even entertain. And again, they're trying to arrest him. But he refutes them and he, he doesn't back down, he doesn't surrender. They couldn't have arrested him had they wanted to at that particular time. Continuing in verses 37 through 39. And this is, of, of anything that is important to hear in this chapter, it's all important, this expose of the human heart and of the different reactions to Jesus, this is all important. But what Jesus says now, I want you to consider carefully the context where he says this. There are people there who want to kill him. There are people there who aren't sure who he is. There are people there who are saying that he has a demon. There are people there who are cautiously believing in him. What is the invitation? What is the, what is the pinnacle moment of this whole chapter? It's coming right up here in verses 37 to 9, 39. And we're going to get into here into the connection between the feast and Jesus. On the last day of the feast, the great day, 
Jesus stood up, stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And look, look at the people that he is speaking to right now. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this, and this is John interpreting. He says, now he says this about, said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, when Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit, or the, the living water flowing from within those who believe in him, and John clarifies that this is the Holy Spirit. That opens up so much scripture. But it opens up even wider when we realize that they were celebrating the Feast of Booths. And this was pronounced on the last and great day of the feast. There's two ways of thinking of what that great day would be. It could have been the seventh day of the feast, which technically was the last day. But there was a cleanup and a, an afterglow day afterwards where people would repeatedly sing the Hallel, which is a co collection of, of psalms, I think starting at 113 to 15, something like that. And it was a time of great rejoicing. And it was a time of uh, just uh, reflecting upon the grace of God in providing for them when they were out in the desert. Well, the Israelites, they lost the observance of this feast for many years. They went into captivity. They lost the scriptures. They lost the word of God. They couldn't freely have access to it. And they drifted. And they intermarried and, and things got really messy among them. But in the days of Nehemiah, there was a revival. And Ezra the priest assembled the scriptures. And he stood on a podium made especially for the occasion and read the word of God. And the people stood as they listened. And as they stood, they were overcome with emotion because they were hearing the very words of God. And I want to read for you from the end of chapter 45, one of the, or, or chapter 8 in um, Nehemiah. Um, one of the things that was instituted and, and on the occasion of this reading of the word it was the time of the festival of booths. And they were observing the festival of booths. After the festival, on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly. And this is what they were taught on the solemn assembly. Well, first of all, I'll read some background from chapter 8, verse 45 in Nehemiah chapter 9, or chapter 8. The officers then came to the, oh, wrong passage. Nehemiah 8, verse 16. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves. Booths, the little tent-like things. Each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God in the, in the square of the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that 
they, the people of Israel, had, had not done so. And then there was great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first to the last day, he read from the book of the law. They kept the seven feast days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly, according to the rule. So there is dispute among Bible scholars whether the eighth day was the last day of the feast or whether it was the solemn assembly. Or, or whether the yeah, solemn assembly to follow. Um, okay, now, I'm missing something here. Nehemiah. You can tell that I've just uh, gone off script here. Now, if you look at Nehemiah chapter 9, about verse 13 or 14. It says, And you made them to know your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. This is the teaching that's going on during the festival of, or on this eighth day. It says, You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Okay? Well, big deal. Bread from heaven? Well, we've kind of just heard about bread from heaven, haven't we? We've heard Jesus feeding the 5,000. He explained that, that was, he was the true bread of heaven. The, the bread that wouldn't rot if it was kept a day too long. You know, the bread that would be food for eternal life. And then, uh, also, now it talks about the water from the rock. Well, fortunately... Nehemiah gives us some interpretation so that we understand what is meant by the bread, what is meant by the water from the rock. Verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. So you've got two things working together. But the, 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 what I want you to notice here is the good spirit, the spirit that God gave to the people to work among them or to instruct them. And he did this through the priests who would stand and make plain the sense of the scripture in, in small groups. That's how they did it. They, they preached. Um, but he says, but he's equating here the water that's coming from the rock and he's putting it into their context and saying, this is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is that water that flows. Now, when, when uh, John and when Jesus refers to, or when he says, out of his inmost being or out of his belly, which is the source of emotion, the source of the soul, of the personality, that there will be living water, there is debate on whether on how this passage ought to be worded. There are some that think that it, it should be worded in such a way that Jesus is speaking of himself as the spiritual rock, as the source of the living water. And if you just look at the passage and you change the punctuation slightly, it might not work if you're not reading an ESV, but listen... It could be read as this, and it would fit completely with Greek grammar. It could be read, if anyone thirsts, let him come and drink, comma, whoever believes in me, period. 
In other words, the one who thirsts and drinks is the one who believes in him. Okay? Then, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, it's not really clear which passage John is referencing, but that could, that could indeed refer to Christ. Paul refers to Jesus as the rock in the desert from which the water came. In any case, what you have here is interpreted by John very directly that this river of living water, this torrent of living water that resides within Christ or resides within the believer is indeed the Holy Spirit. Now, why is this so important? that Jesus addresses this crowd in this way. It is indeed the free offer of salvation. The river is there. The water is there. Whoever will drink of that water will live. Whoever will drink of that water will have everlasting life. Whoever will drink of that water will have eyes to hear ears to hear and be able to judge righteous judgment will be able to perceive spiritual things will be able to perceive as the people in the day of Nehemiah were able to perceive because not because the, the Levites were brilliant teachers because, but because his good spirit was given to help them understand so we can, we can talk about the extent and the nature of the atonement and we can have differing opinions on that. But what we must agree upon is that the gospel, the water of life, and the, the, the free offer to receive the teaching of the cross, which culminates in the death and the burial, the resurrection and the ascending of Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit, that this is something that is to be proclaimed to all. It's something to be proclaimed to religious people and common people, to doubting people and faithful people, to your brothers, to your sisters, to your own disciples, as it were. I want to close just by tracing this concept of a river of living water and its connection with the Holy Spirit through Scripture. And the first place that I'd like us to look at is... In the psalm that we read as a call to worship. Psalm 46, verses 1 through 5. Where it says, God is our refuge and strength. A very, a very present help in trouble. There will, there will, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the sea, into the heart of the sea, though its waters foam, and though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now there is some water, there is... There is only destruction in that image of water. But listen to what's coming here. In the light of all this churning, foaming, destroying, killing water and the, the scene of chaos of the mountains falling into the sea, it's like we're suddenly transported into a place of peace. There is a river whose streams make <coughs> glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. 
God will help her when morning dawns. This is Jesus speaking of Zion. It's Jesus also, or pardon me, it is the psalmist speaking of Zion, but he is also speaking prophetically of the church. He's speaking prophetically of the presence of God among his people as a river who makes, that makes glad the cities of God. And he will help her when morning dawns. There's an eschatological sense of this, of a restored Zion, of a new Jerusalem. But there's an immediate sense. There's a promise that the river of God, the river makes glad the people of God. And this is the hope that Jesus was offering. It was in kernel form. They didn't fully understand it. All that they needed to know is that they needed to believe in Jesus. And through this faith, they would have this ever-equipping, ever-flowing, ever-helpful, ever-teaching river of God in their midst. Well, the, the theme is also picked up in the prophets. If I can find my place. In Ezekiel chapter 47. 46. I think it's uh, 47. Ezekiel is getting uh, some instructions about the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And there's this passage about water flowing from the temple. Remember, Jesus is standing in the temple on the Feast of Booths on the day when they've been talked about they've been taught about the, the water coming from the rock. And the same thing will happen later when the disciples stand and the Holy Spirit is given. And there is a torrent coming out of Jerusalem as the Holy Spirit moves and fills and overflows. Ezekiel 47, then he brought me back to the door of the temple and behold, water was issuing from below. The, shred, the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was flowing from down from below the south end to the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces the east. And behold, the water was trickling out of the south side. Going on eastward with the measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water. It was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and let me, led me through the water. It was knee deep. And again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Which is, do you get this? Do you perceive what this means? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And as I went back, I saw on the banks of the river very many trees on one side and the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and, gets, and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. The, that would be the Dead Sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. 
Wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so that everything will live wherever the river goes. If that is not a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit, giving life wherever it goes, you got all kinds of fish swimming in the river. Maybe those are the kind of fish, the fish that Peter was fishing for. Maybe that, that represents people, I don't know. But there is this, there's this life-giving, ever-increasing stream, this torrent flowing from the temple of God. And of course, we know that there's a connection between the temple of God and the church of Christ even the individual heart where the Holy Spirit dwells. And there is an, an ever-increasing flow as people come to Christ, as, as the Lord adds to the church daily those who are being saved. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, and I believe this is the scripture he's talking about, out of his belly, out of his inmost being, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's what's, I believe, what's in view here. And of course, we've got other references to living water, the woman at the well. But just to close, I'll look at one more passage here. The very last chapter of the Bible. Seems like a fitting place to end up today. Revelation chapter 22. Verse 1, the angel showed me the river of water, bright as crystal, crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in, in it and its and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be upon their foreheads. You realize that he's, he's talking about people who have been redeemed, who have been sealed for the day of redemption, people who belong to Jesus. This is within the, the city of God. And night will be no more. There will be no need of a lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, we have reference in that passage to the Father, the throne of God, and to the Lamb. I believe there's also a reference to the Spirit of God. That life-giving river that runs through the city of God, producing abundant fruit, bringing healing to the nations. This is the message that we need to take. The message that Jesus Christ has given his life, has poured out his life. In fact, he has, he endured and he accomplished what the Father intended for the hour, the time, for his time when he gave himself on the cross for our sin. 
And when he did give himself, there's even a precursor of the giving of the Holy Spirit. Because when he is pierced in his side, blood, speaking of forgiveness, speaking of satisfaction, speaking of justification, flows from his side, but also water flows from his side. And so, some of the final words of Scripture. I want to encourage us with these words. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let, it, let, let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Jesus extended this offer of living water to everyone who could hear him. Some of them couldn't yet come. Some of them would never come and could never come. But the water was there for the, for the taking. The life was there. The hope was there. That's the most ambitious chapter text I've ever done in one sermon. Thank you for hanging with me. Um, trust that you'll find encouragement and, and help. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its, its power. Thank you, Lord, that even those passages that are difficult, that there's something worthwhile when we, when we search the scriptures. And Lord, I pray that we would search the scriptures not thinking that we will find eternal life in the words themselves, but in the one that they testify about. As Jesus said, these they are that testify of me. May we, may we find Christ as we read scripture and Lord, uh, receive the gift of eternal life through faith in his death for us and his body, which is the bread of life in his blood, which is for the forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, that we might walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit which is a well of water, or a, a torrent, a river of water flowing from within Christ's inmost being and ultimately from ours. And I pray this in Jesus' name.